everybody, this is Sean. This is Kevin. And this is our second session with the lovely Mr. Tom Coker. He is the artist of The Black Monday Murders and The Ride. So Kevin, what do we talk about with Tom in this episode? Yeah, here we get into, uh, right out of the gate, talking about his film, Catacombs, which was a horror movie from Lionsgate uh, circa 2007, starring Shanna Sossman and Pink, the musician. And then, you know, and talk about uh, his influences on art and how that affected that film. We also talk about the storytelling and his philosophy there. Uh, he and Brian get into a little deep dive, but it's, it's actually pretty cool. So the interesting thing about Catacombs is most of that movie was lit with an industrial flashlight. But when you look at Tom's black and white high contrast work, that makes perfect sense. He's just able to add so much focus to such a small part of the screen while everything else is just layered in this encroaching blackness. Uh, I just love it. And for people that haven't heard about this film, because you know, it has been a few years, it didn't get a theatrical release in the States. And there was more politics, I think, involved in that than anything else, just internally at Lionsgate. But it did get a worldwide release. It, it opened in a lot of countries. But you can still get it on you know, Amazon Prime and you know iTunes, all those places, and, and even find it some, some free streaming options, I believe, right now. It's definitely worth checking out if you're a fan of Tom's. I mean, how many comic book artists have directed their own movie? You know, So it's pretty, pretty cool. All right, well, let's jump right in. Enjoy. Yeah, no, I'm just going to say, but it, it kind of goes, boils back to when, way back when, it's almost 16 years ago, or it is 16 years ago, when I was sitting in a room at a, at a breakfast with Brian and Cully, Hamner, and uh, Doug Wagner and myself, I think the four of us had breakfast, and uh, talking about the ride. And we were saying, well, you know, should it be color? Should it be black and white? You know, and, and for me, I was thinking black and white is just a way to save a little bit of money. So we're trying to put this book together. And, and it's like, you know, black is a color. People forget that black is a color. Yeah. You know, and, and you can use it so well. And and you obviously are, are a master at that, too. And I'm going to segue now into <laughs> <laughs> into your movie because. Oh, holy yeah. shit. Yeah. You directed some, a fucking There's a lot movie. of black in that, yeah. And yeah, and, and so I watched it again, you know, uh, the other night, getting ready for this, and I was like, man, he was sitting there with Hellboy in his lap, saying, "What would Mignola do right here?" <laughs> like, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> That's the, that is the darkest movie ever, which is just, a, you know, thank you, black. <laughs> <laughs> you use black throughout. I mean. After she arrives in Paris, that movie's black. I yeah, mean, the yeah. whole is the color is black, and well, wow, the, I hadn't seen it in a while, so that was fun to watch. I mean, you're you got you watched the cut I sent you, so that's that's the cut um, that wasn't released. Like, I only was able to watch that movie again for the first time maybe like I think it was two or three years ago that there was something on BuzzFeed that mentioned it that a friend texted me a link to or something like that, and I realized that my daughter had never seen the movie. And had never, didn't even realize I'd made the movie. I mean, she knew I'd made a movie. Oh, wow. But it was like, she was, I remember her first birthday, I was in Romania shooting. Kids are just not impressed. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. well, it's an LA kid. She's like, well, I mean, the color timing is pretty weak. But um, <laughs> a little MTV choppy choppy editing here, Dad. 
Whatever Scorsese's we, kids are like, yeah, that was all right. <laughs> We've seen the gangster thing before, Marty. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I sat down and, and I watched it with her, the cut you saw. And, and I thought, oh, this is not... Most of my issues are with the cuts that were released and also just with the, the business side of it and the personal side of everything that happened. But actually, actually watching the movie... I was really pleasantly surprised at how much I enjoyed it. Like I, I, I was able to just, you know, detach myself from, from uh, the, the, all the baggage and just enjoy the, as a spectator. And the black thing, I would sit there, we had a little, it's called Video Village. I, I assume everybody knows what that is. It's where the director and the, the script supervisor and producers, whoever else sits and watches a shot on a monitor so that you're so you can see the framing and you can see the action as it's as it's actually happening while you're while the action is actually taking place on the set and we were in a massive soundstage the only light source for 90 percent of the time we were there was that flashlight she's holding oh wow shannon's holding which is called the beast and at, at that time i think it had 26 lithium batteries in it and it would last about 90 minutes Oh. And I think the I think the flashlight I think it cost three grand at the time. It was like a search and rescue uh, flashlight, and, and and it hummed, and so you would turn it on and go. Oh man! It's just like a lightsaber. <laughs> yes, exactly. It was there was warnings on it saying that if you if you pointed it in somebody's face, it it, it could criminally be considered a weapon. <laughs> it was just like wow. it was an amazing thing and so it was freezing cold and pitch dark and we had these little teeny black and white monitors that were about six by six little teeny things like it was archaic compared to what now and we're shooting on 35 this is before the video the digital revolution and and the producer would look over my shoulder and be like all i see is black and I'd be like, you see that little white right there? That's all you need to worry about. Yes. And that yes. that one little corner sliver of white is the only thing that matters in this entire frame or this entire scene. And uh, and I was lucky enough to have a, a DP, uh, Maxime Alexander, who shot all of Alexander Aja's films, High Tension, etc. I remember we would talk, and I would say, I want a close up. And this goes back to comics. I'd say, I want, a, I want a close-up of her face. And he would frame what he called an American. Um, and they, they would have, they had these versions of all the shots, like a long shot or a medium shot or a close-up or whatever, and they were called Americans. Like an American medium, an American close, an American long. Wow. And they were just these standard, like a close-up basically included nipples. You know, and, and there was, you know, six inches of room above their head. And I was like, that's not a close-up. Like, that's a, a medium shot at best. And, and he would say, oh, that's a close-up. It's an American close-up. And I'm like, and so that's when all the storyboards that you were talking about, uh, Brian, I would just sit there with my pen and just sit there and go, this is a fucking close-up. And I would draw, you know, like a shot of an eye and, a, and part of a nose taking up three quarters of a screen. And as soon as he figured out that that's what, I was aiming for visually and, and the level and the amount of black that I was aiming for, everything suddenly just opened up. 
as far as visual visually being allowed to do what I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, well, and so it, that, it really it really seemed like you were playing, and 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 I think this is something that I see in your in your comics also is that it's not just blacks, but it, it you you have um, I I think a design sense where like on every panel and, and every frame of the movie, there's blacks, but then there's these primitive shapes, you know, it's just like black and a circle or black and a triangle or black and a square. Yeah. And compositionally, it, um, it, it, it sets off this kind of tension because compositionally it's very relaxing, but because there's so much black on the page, it's very disconcerting. <laughs> you know, so, yeah, it makes so you uncomfortable. It, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, and and so the blacks kind of they feel like there's something there that you can't see, but you need to be nervous about it. Yeah, yeah, and and I I mean, you mentioned Mignola earlier, uh, Kevin, and and the, when I was when I decided that storytelling was going to be what I do, it I had to forsake my Mignola. Because, like John Paul Young, what Mike Mignola does is so feels so good to me that yeah. I can't. It, it's 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 a it's a drug that I have a very very hard time resisting, and I have a very low tolerance for. Like I can get swept <laughs> up in it very quickly. It's, it's straight up opioid. <laughs> yes, it is. It is, and. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> I read a I read a thing um, that Dean Cornwall wrote, where he was talking about uh, composition, and he was talking about diamonds and X's and triangles and squares and diagonals, all this kind of shit. It was really informative. At, at the end, he said that, and I, I don't know if you know the painting, Brian, but it's these two lovers that are standing on a footbridge over like a little canal, and it's like a white and blue painting. Dude, I just saw the original to that. Okay. He's talking about that painting and he's saying that the composition in that painting is really obvious. Like it's a very obvious composition. And so, and often his compositions are very obvious. Um, and so what he started doing to combat the obviousness of those compositions was that he's, he stopped using solid blacks and he started using mm. blacks that were scattered enough that they didn't feel they fit they became a gray but they were still compositionally they would still work as a solid black and so, but he could use those scattered blacks he said it not only broke up and hit the composition better but it it he could use those broken blacks to direct the eye wow better wow. than he could use the solid blacks and um and I read that and I was like, oh my God, that's the that's my ticket out of Mignola Land because the way you add an import to a comic book image is by doing what Mike Mignola does, which is these super solid blacks that direct your eyes straight to the, and it's brilliant. It is so well, I, you, I mean, everybody here knows what Mike, how good Mike Mignola is and how influential he is. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, well, well something, something else that I'm, that I'm kind of like grooving on about the, about the stuff that you do and it's, it's, and and I think it's the hallmark of the storytellers versus the the stars or the artists, which is sacrificing the moment for the greater good. 
Yes, that's a big you know, that's a big deal. Yeah, where where like you will do shots, you know, and uh, especially in the um, you know sort of what I've seen of the uh, the Black Monday stuff, where it's like I know that you can draw a better picture there, or I know that you can draw more uh, a cooler image there, but you don't, and you you hold back. You know, sort of on 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 that page, and then you hold back on the next page. But on the next page, then it's tits out. It's it's yeah. You know, it's it's well. Like, I mean, there's a lot of pacing. I mean, that's like a. I remember Kel, Kelly Jones uh, gave me my first real criticism when I was probably like 15 or 16 or something like that, and he was talking about like he was saying you can't make every panel a cover. Yeah. And you yeah. can't you can't make every panel the greatest drawing in the book. Yeah, but I think I think that's what artists have to do. Yeah, so you have to figure out a way to take those shortcomings and and figure out a way to ration it into a crescendo. Like like manipulate the shortcomings of the medium and time and printing and everything else to work as a boon for your storytelling. So you, yeah. can, you can do two or three pages that are like quick, choppy little, you know, insets or, 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 or long, you know, landscape panels or whatever that, and then you have that, that all leads up to an image where you resolve that storytelling into this moment, whether it's well-drawn or just a proper relief or, or, or the proper payoff or whatever. Yeah. Um, that's, that's the thing that, that I really learned from, um, from Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns, you know, yeah. it wasn't until it wasn't until I went gotten away from the book for for more than a year, and then I decided, oh man, the art was so cool in that book. Let me go back and look at it. And when I went back to look at it, I realized there's a bunch of little tiny kind of bullshit panels, yeah. you know. Uh, and I mean, it's it's panels after panels after panels of little tiny TV screens and. And all these little things, and, and he put the bat on his face. And all that yeah, and he he builds the tension through these little tiny panels, but then when he releases the tension, it's a splash page. Yeah, so you I, don't remember the little panels; you just remember how magnificent those splash pages uh, were. But like, he's yeah, sacrificing yeah. every moment, sacrificing every moment for that payoff, and uh, and that payoff just gets like indelibly burned into your you know sort of psyche when you see it yeah so, I, mean, I got, so that i got the same really cool i got the same education or whatever from i mean it's still miller but it was it was mazzucchelli's born again stuff where oh, mazzucchelli yeah. would draw a panel and i'd be like if i drew that panel i would throw it in the fucking garbage but he draws it and it is the best looking thing i've ever seen <laughs> because it's in context you know like in, <laughs> right. in context it is it's exactly what was needed it doesn't yeah. matter if it's well drawn or poorly drawn. It's in context. It's exactly what the story needed. And I think the same thing, I'm a bigger fan of Ronan than I am of Dark Knight. Dark mm -hmm. Knight Returns. Just because it's not, uh, you take the Batman equation out of it and I can just appreciate the story and the, and the like I'm not bringing any baggage to, to Ronan, whereas I bring all my right. Batman baggage to. to oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah and, you can't help it. And like in Roman, it is the same thing where you're like, there's 
panel after panel after panel of like an insert of, of a, you know, a hand on the hilt of a, of a, of the pommel of a sword or, or a demon's eye or a blade of grass. And then suddenly it's like a two page spread of an entire city made of it's, I don't know how he did it or, or I mean, Akira does the same thing. Where yeah. yeah. Beat after beat after beat. You're just like, I've never read anything that reads as fast as Akira. Like, yeah, and it's and it's it's really stunning how how much of the panels just aren't interesting at all. No, but it's it's that accumulation of uh, of those panels that uh, that really you know when you get that moment, it's just it's just so awe inspiring, and uh, and and I think that's the that's kind of the back door that storytellers have where like, yeah. you know, you see these guys that are artists that every, you know, when I, when I look at Travis Cheris's stuff, man, every panel, every drawing, yeah. oh you know, God. it's just yeah. like, Oh wow. This is the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Yeah, I can never draw that well. <laughs> you know, he, his last major work took him like two or three years. I think he has about 40 to 50. Yeah. Pages. yeah I, rem I remember. Yeah, that. He, was living in, he was living in Paris, right? Yeah, seeing those posters he did. That was yeah. the problem. Was two two or three years for 40 to 50 pages. <laughs> I'm going to drag that shit out for another fucking year. But, um, <laughs> yeah. What's the problem with that? There is no problem with that. <laughs> Travis but, is a and, genius. And I will sit yeah. there and watch that fucker. Last time I saw him at a show, this is probably 10 years ago now, he was doing sketch cards. And uh, he's doing these sketch cards and he's just, I mean, he's just going straight into into Sakura Pigma marker, you know, the... Oh, yeah, yeah. Just going straight onto the card, not drawing anything. Just going straight to ink. And he was blasting those fucking things out, and they were great. And I was just sitting there, and I, I know, I don't know Travis well, but I worked with Troy Hubs for a long time, and so I have an idea of Travis. Um, and I realized, like, the last thing in the world I should say to Travis right now is... Why don't you destroy your fucking comics like that? Because they look great and you're fast as shit and you're still better than 80% of the people, 90% of the people in the business. Um, and I realized if I said that, it would suddenly mean that that poor guy waiting for his cards would never get another card because Travis would suddenly slow down and start to. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and well, that's, but that's just it. It's, it's what he does is, is perfect. You know? Yeah, and that's, a, that's the problem. And, and, you know, I, I, as the, as the editor of a, I don't know what you'd call it, a boutique line of comic books, uh, is, is, I don't know if that sounds pretentious <laughs> or stupid, but, <laughs> but that's about, that's like an Arnold Palmer of both right there. That was good. Right, yeah. Like, you know, when I watch you guys draw, you know, like there's Brian, there's you, like Chris Bruner, Jason Pearson. I mean, you know, I'm the biggest idiot that's ever walked in the face of the earth because I will sit there and say, yeah, I mean, I know it's been three years to get this comic book, but look at the goddamn pages. And, yeah. and Travis obviously is the, the goat of oh, yeah. everything he draws is amazing. So I'm going to shoot myself tomorrow because I've just, I've had just enough Clyde Mays to say this. <laughs> <laughs> like, I will wait for Brian for two years to draw a comic. <laughs> you know, like Brian, like Brian's been drawing a comic for like two years for me and he just finished it. And I'm like, see, this is the best shit ever. But you just said, <laughs> you saying that right now, Kevin, you just set the inside dimensions of the envelope. 
there is an outside dimension that Brian will now have to explore that will be well past two years. (laughs) He's like, well, if he'll wait two years, then he'll probably wait, you know, (laughs) right? Yeah, four years. Yeah, but when you look at when you look at the end product, like, and and you kind of go back to even like a Marvel book when when Brian Hitch was drawing uh, the Ultimates, and it, it wasn't it wasn't a monthly book. But I mean, how bad would it have sucked? To had I won't name the artist, but have one artist do like two issues in the middle of that thing, like it would have yeah. just ruined it. And, and well, yeah, I mean, Brian Hitch. I don't know. The dog is barking just thinking about it. Like the yeah, dog, that's my dog. Yeah. Your dog is barking just thinking about that artist that I'm thinking about right now, and you all know who I'm talking about. If oh, you yeah. have done well, two you... issues of the Ultimates, it would have just screwed the whole thing up. You put peanut butter on your hamburger. <laughs> you know exactly. You want to know what what the cool the coolest thing I ever I ever heard was um was uh, I was hanging out with Chris Chris Warner and you know I was kind of like lamenting wanting to do stuff work in a style that makes me faster and everything like that and Chris just kind of stopped me and Chris said hold on I want you to name a great comic book just any great comic book and I was just like. Dark Knight Returns, and he's like, that book was late. <laughs> and I was just like, yeah, okay. <laughs> and then I named six books, and he said, those were all late. <laughs> so I was like, oh, yeah. oh okay. <laughs> you know, I was just, and it just blew me away because I was like, Watchmen, and he's like, that book was late. <laughs> you know, so every book that I could name that was a great book, he was just like, all great books are late, and nobody remembers that they were late. Not only that, like, I, 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 I'm a big fan of Eric Larson as a, as a person and as an illustrator. I, I love what he does. But as a person, like, he made a big deal to explain to people, like, John Buscema, this might not be true. It might be something who's attributed to John Buscema, but where he, John Buscema would say that he woke every, up every day thinking, I'm going to draw six pages today. And Whoa. he never actually was able to do it, but... If he, but he said that if he didn't try to draw six, he wouldn't finish three. And that was kind of like the trick he played on his, like the mental trick he played on himself to, to, uh, to make sure that he hit, you know, he got these some amount of pages done. And people will hold that up as his gold standard of like a page a day or two pages a day or whatever. Eric will say like, okay, here's the pencils. Here's what Jim's talking about. I mean, John Buson was talking about. And this isn't to slight John Beeson at all, because I think the guy's a fucking genius, but none of the boots had laces. Right. The, the costumes right. were literally a belt. Yep. You know, well, and a star. To, like, that was it. Yeah. And I, I draw I draw Iron Man today, and it's like a fucking Rubik's Cube to figure out how that costume <laughs> works. Right. Because it doesn't yeah. it doesn't function in, in any kind of real world. And so... If I want to draw a back, like a three-quarter back shot of Iron Man, no one's ever drawn that of his boot before, so no one knows what it looks like. I was having this conversation with somebody a few few months ago. The, the difference between the comics we grew up on in the '70s and the '80s, you know, our age group, uh, '70s, '80s, '90s, whatever, but I guess it was '70s, '80s. The artists were trying to draw monthly comics, and as much as I love Mike Zek, you know, Captain America's boots, there were no laces. There were no straps, yeah. you know, they, it was simple and, and we didn't care and because comics were made for kids. 
you know, we as, as kids appreciated that this, this shit just looked cool. Uh, it didn't have to be perfect. And then it was, and then design. Design. It was yeah, it was, it was designed to, to move quickly and you didn't worry about the weeds, right? I mean, it was, here's Captain America, here's a, the little bit of the background, whatever. You didn't care because you were reading a fun story and you were eight years old or 10 years old or 13 uh, reading G.I. Joe. Yeah, you know, it didn't have to be perfect. But now our standard is that everything has got to be like meticulous because we all looked at going yeah. back to Brian Hitch drawing the ultimates like he fucked it up for everybody. Yeah, that <laughs> level of sophistication is, is and, and it used to be that like if I drew a panel where I had a fist in the foreground and someone in the background yelling at that fist, just by putting a couple of lines on the forearm, I could go, okay, that's Iron Man's fist or that's Batman's fist because it has little spikes on it or whatever. And you can't do that today. I mean, with Batman, you still can, but with a lot of guys, those characters were designed so that if you just showed one corner of the cowl from behind, you would still go, oh, that wing means that's Captain America. I, I then, wonder is, you know, from a publishing standpoint is if, and I don't know, like my kid, my, my son, my, my youngest child, I've got three, my youngest is 12 and he doesn't really care about comics at all, but you know, he plays video games and, you know, he's, Fortnite with friends and all that stuff. I, I kind of, I'm afraid we miss that generation, but I wonder if, what do kids really care? You know, so I think you've got two audiences. You've got the 35 to 60 year old male. They care a lot. And they kids care. Don't give a shit. No, they don't. No. And, and I think that's the way we re but, recapture but I think, the I think it's a, I think what you have to consider when you toss that out is a, is a different metric. And the different metric that you have to toss out is if, uh, if you gave your kid Pong, would he be happy? Hell no. But I bet if you played Pong with them, I bet if you played Pong with them, they would enjoy it. Yes, it, that, this is true because like last year, somebody gave us a, a little, one of the mini Ataris. It was like, you got you got the Atari joysticks, but yeah, you had a little box. I mean, they bought it at like Costco for $30 or whatever. And my kids were obsessed with it. So like for like the week between Christmas and New Year's, they're all playing River Raid and they're just Whoa. like, ah, this is so hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But they got obsessed with it. So I think that there, there is, there's a happy medium. Uh, and, and now that we're in this, this crazy virus phase, you know, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe that's something to, to kind of look back at. I mean, like I always thought that the, you know, Bruce Tim is also in a completely different way, kind of mess things up because when everybody that does kids books now, they try to make them look like Bruce Tim. Yeah. Yeah. I love Bruce Tim, but as a kid, I don't know, like does Bruce Tim appeal to me as much. I mean, I, like, I, I, all I know is my daughter and her friends and they read like, once she was able to convince me not to ever buy her another Marvel treasury. Um, <laughs> and, and she, I mean, she enjoyed those, but at a certain age, she was like, I don't want to read these anymore. She read bone. She thought Bone was the, the bee's knees. And then, but then she's, she's reading a guy, I don't know the author's name, but his the book I have on my bookshelf that I'm reading by him is called Uzumaki. Yes, that's it. She thinks this guy is the greatest storyteller, comic book creator of all time. And it's all just creepy stories, except for the one about his cat, but, or his girlfriend's cat. But, um, and they're all like, five to 25 page long 
creepy stories, but they're drawn by, you know, they're drawn in a sort of manga, manga kind of an infused mm-hmm. way. And some stories he draws beautifully. They're really That's well drawn. Really cool. And then some stories are very loosely, like you could, and I, I said, like, is this, just, you know, I'm asking her questions. She's like, well, you know, these, this is a compilation of stories he's done over the course of X amount of time. And so some jobs he had more time to do and some jobs he didn't. And some jobs he changed the art style because it fit the story more or whatever and so on. Um, if I show her a superhero, she looks at me like I must, I, 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 I must have been hit in the head or something like she's concerned for me because what she's told me and her friends have told me is like, because they all read comics when they were little, but now you can see better versions of those characters on the screen than you can in the comic. Wow. Wow. And so if I'm going to read a comic, I'm going to read something that's unique and, and different and strange and that has a voice. Like I don't, I'm not a, there's no more D or I'm not saying for everybody, I'm saying for my particular group of kids that I, I interact with, there's no DC, there's no Marvel, there's image comics, and then there's everything else. And it's yes. just like, if it's cool, I'm like, she loves Snot Girl. She loves Scott, Scotty Young's book. I, why I Hate Fairyland? Is that it? I Hate Fairyland. Yeah. 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 I, yeah. No, she just, because they're genius. She yes. says, these people are writing stories that are, they're, they're character driven stories that have a voice. Yep. I don't yep. give a yep. fuck about Superman. No. Yeah, Superman doesn't change. Superman never, no. nothing well, ever happens in a Superman comic book. Yeah, and that that's like the whole thing with you know the comics that I do and the comics that I grew up loving. As as a mid thirties guy, I would go. I would still buy graphic novels to read them. And I mean, I love comics, so I'm going to read comics. But most guys, you know, they grew up reading comics. They got out of it. They they get back into it, whatever. But now, like, you don't need to read superhero comic books because Marvel's doing better movies than most of the comics you can pick up because there's not so much continuity. Like you can watch a movie every three months and you can keep up with the continuity as opposed yeah. to trying to trying to follow the Marvel universe. Yeah, it's encapsulated. It's it's encapsulated in this one thing. Yeah, it, it's so like I used to go to the comic book store to get my fix. I don't have to do that anymore because these you know the comics are alive. Uh, in the Marvel films, and you know, I mean, obviously DC's tried it, you know, and mostly failed. My daughter uh, hates DC movies. Oh, it's because they suck. Uh, yes. yeah, everyone I mean, does. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like even the the best one has been like Aquaman, and it's a shitty movie. I will uh, never. I will take your word for that. No, it's a it's a it's a horrible movie. But the the guy playing Aquaman is fantastic. Like you yeah. just you love him. He's infectious. I mean, it's the same with things like uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s Iron Man. That was a, a, a better... Yeah, that little kid who plays uh, Spider-Man or whatever, she thinks he's the greatest Spider-Man ever. And I mean... It... Nah, yeah, he arguably is. He's the embodiment, uh, to me, uh, of the character like that I grew up loving. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and know. it's weird, too, because there's this... Like, I've never been a superhero artist. I don't like rope drawing. I don't like drawing the same bicep every time I draw a bicep, you know? And, and oh, yeah. I was never, and you, you really have to boil it down to that. Yeah. And the superhero stuff, like I was never going to be comfortable doing it, but not only because of that, but because I have such respect and love for the, the guys who come before me 
that I'll never draw as good a vision as Peaceman did. I'll never draw as good a Punisher as Jim Lee did. I'll never draw a good, as good a Storm as Art Adams did. I'll never draw as good a Batman as Brian Stelfreeze did. Like, so why should I even fuck with that? Because right. it's just yeah. gonna, it's gonna end up with me being frustrated. Right. And so it means I can go off and do stuff like The Ride or like Black Monday Murder and just make shit up. And when I get to just make shit up, I have so much fun. It, it allows me to kind of not be a part yeah. of that superhero world or the Marvel DC thing, unless, I mean, I, I do obviously do work for Marvel fairly regularly. Um, but even then they're like, well, just do what you want to do to this character. Like we don't care. Yeah, and, and you don't have the weight of history sitting on your shoulders. Well, you know, but it's yeah. funny when you look when you look back at it. Don't you think that like Sal Buscema and John Romita Senior, those guys were doing what you're doing and and what Brian's doing, like what you guys are doing now. They were having fun because there was no continuity. They had yeah, they were making from, it up. They were people making it up as that. they went, and yeah, and people don't understand that, and and so you can't do that with corporate comics. And no. look. I mean, I, I grew up on this stuff. I love it. I love watching the movies. I love going, to, like, when the Superman movie opened up, you know, like, even though it was Zack Snyder, I was there opening night uh, because I grew up on that stuff. But now... Superman does not fucking break necks. Oh, God. That's the yeah. end of the story. He does not Van Damme neck snap people. <laughs> no, he doesn't. That's what, that's... that's what OK Man does, not Superman. <laughs> so horrible. So horrible. But, yeah. but the the... You know, the, the, what you guys are doing now is what those guys were doing in the 70s. And yeah, you know, you're, but the, the only difference is, yeah, most of you are you're like, you're stepping out, like with Black Money Murders or whatever, you're stepping out and saying, I, I don't have a, I'm not, I don't have a something that, that like the safety net. Like I'm going out and really doing something that is uh, me- meaningful to me as a creator. And, um, you know, there's been some, so many amazing books over the last, you know, 20 years, 10 years, especially were creators that they grew up, they got their chops in Marvel and DC and now they're, they're stretching their wings and uh, yeah. doing something that's personal to them. I tell you what, um, what really kind of like marked what I thought was near the end of it for me was, um, was I was getting together with, uh, with Scott Peterson. We had pitched a world's finest uh, story and everyone at DC was just like, oh, this is fantastic. You know, like, this is a great story. And we were like really excited because everyone liked what we were doing. And, uh, and then they finally said, yeah, but we, we can't do this story. And, uh, and I was just like, why, why not? I mean, you like it, you know, so why can't we do it? And they said, we're, we're doing this other thing with, uh, with Ra's al Ghul. And I thought, we can't work on a Ra's al Ghul story because Ra's al Ghul is busy. He has another. <laughs> yeah. He has another appointment. He is <laughs> so engaged, previously engaged. Yeah, so he can't. He can't make it. Our book doesn't fit into his schedule. <laughs> you know, and I was just like, "Okay, we're done here. <laughs> we are done." Well, that's a weird thing. Like, I remember, I, I used to be in like play a lot of music when I was a kid and like be in bands and stuff like that. And and comics, it's a weird thing where like. I was always a Beatles fan, or I've always been like a, you know, like a Stevie Wonder fan, or I'm a Sam and Dave fan, or, or or I'm a Metallica fan, or whatever. And the work of those artists might drive me in a certain direction. 
but I know that I'm never going to grow up and become a part of the Beatles. <laughs> right? Like that just isn't going to happen. But in comics, you can grow up reading Spider-Man your whole life and then get a job drawing Spider-Man and become a part of Spider-Man. There's no incentive up until very, very recently to people. I mean, I, I would talk to artists and writers who were at Image and that I've done most of my careers been spent working here and there with Image. And they would say, well, as soon as Marvel notices this book, I'm going to jump ship and go draw, go write Fantastic Four or whatever. But at Image, you're doing a book that's, that you own, that you're creating and, and driving in every way, shape, and form. It's successful, both commercially and critically. But this is all just a platform for you to be able to go work for the man. That's a weird mindset in comics to me, where in every, yeah, other, in every other line of creative work, the idea is work for the man long enough that you can get out from underneath that wing and then go do your own thing. Whereas in comics, it's do your own thing long enough. The man wants to hire you to write his shit. And then you can yeah. become part of the Beatles. And I just, I don't, I've never understood uh, that. It doesn't make they, sense to me. Yeah. And I'd say I've had a couple of projects that have failed because yeah, I don't make people sign exclusive contracts, you know, to do books with me. And I've always told guys, look, I've been really lucky because I've worked with, you know, icons and guys coming up, uh, you know, like that's sort of like, there's no middle ground, right? Like it's like icons or guys that are trying to get in that are, that, that <laughs> have the chops. And, and one guy told me, he's like, look, I'm going to start this book, but I've been talking to, you know, the, the big two about a thing. And I'm like, look, I'm, I'm not going to, if they offer you Spider-Man, do Spider-Man. Like, I'm not going to stop you from that. Uh, and it's burned me once or twice because, you know, you guys will jump ship and, um, but yeah, you know, I'm, I'm not going to stop somebody from, from working on the thing that they've been trying to do for the last 10 years. Right. And, uh, yeah. um, yeah, right. I mean, cause I don't pay rates like those guys, but it, it is, it is disheartening when, when a little bit, when you see like the man, you know, this was something special and that's just your name on a credit. You know, like that's, yeah. that's the only part that's a little bit disappointing, but you know, you get it. I mean, I, I understand it. I completely, you know, I mean, if, you know, DC called and said, you know, Hey, do you want to edit the, the Batman line? I mean, you can't do 12 gauge anymore, but you can run Batman. You know, that would be a very tempting thing. Right. Uh, so I get it, but you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's fun just to watch like what image is doing and has been doing for so long. And, and, you know, now dark horse has a creator online, which we've, we did a book over there recently. That's that's what's exciting to me, and watching people create their own stuff with no filters. Like this is my vision for this. Book. Yeah, and there's no safety net either. It's just like it's it just goes out there, and 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 you hope. I mean, I think one of the reasons I like comics more than film is because I can sit down today, and if I have an idea, six or eight or ten weeks from now, I can have that idea finished all by myself. Right. And yeah. And that, it, that's really, that's really the coolest thing. And you can really get close to a hundred percent of your idea on the page. Yeah. And the other great thing too, is that if it's wonderful, then awesome. I'll do some more. If I completely misfire and it sucks, then so what? I'll have another one done in six weeks. Like you can learn from the, from the experience and learn from your, pros and cons and your mistakes or your or your successes or whatever and almost in real time incorporate that into your into your 
into your into your work. And right. yeah, it's in film or in whatever else, you know, you draw, you make a movie and you spend three years working on it in a bubble and then it fails or it succeeds. You really have no idea why it succeeded or failed because you're so isolated and it's so, it's so lethargic as a, as a medium or as a reaction, you know? Well, yeah, and, and film and, and movies, uh, film, TV, uh, you're so dependent on marketing and buzz. And I mean, it used yeah. to be, you know, back when we were growing up, there were three networks. So yeah. if your show premiered and it, it is like, you know, it could suck and still do well because yeah, it was the it was, only it was thing on. to get eyes on it. <laughs> yeah, people yeah, don't no watch what. it. Yeah, and now you can put the greatest show ever and, and nobody sees it because it didn't hit, it didn't trend on Twitter. Yeah, the demographic was yeah, wrong or yeah. whatever, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's crazy. Yep, yep, exactly. Uh, now, luckily, that that has survived and, and persevered, uh, oh, but only because of streaming. Should but we yeah, segue into movie shots we like at this, since we're talking about this? Hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a smooth transition, man. <laughs> I, I pride myself on my subtlety. Yeah, new host Tom Coker. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> well, the question that I have is, I said earlier that that one of the things that uh, that really kind of hit me about your stuff, and and you know, we talked about uh, like how on most occasions you can look at someone's stuff and track their influences. And one of the things that I really what struck me about your work is I could tell that your your storytelling influences came from film rather than comics. Who are your, some of your film influences? There's kind of like these two distinct groups where there's, like I said earlier, there's David Lean and Hitchcock and, and uh, Orson Welles. And like every time I draw a close-up, I'm thinking about Orson Welles because if he, whenever he shoots a, a medium or a close-up, he does those like that, you know, the, the camera's on the floor looking up at the actor. Yeah. And it's a hero shot or it's a villain shot or whatever it is, but it, it, that, it, you know, that story about him digging a hole in the ground in the, in the set or in the stage because he wanted to have this hero shot. Every time I draw a close-up or a portrait, I draw, I do that shot. And every time I watch a horse in the world, I think, oh, he still does it better. <laughs> but so there's those guys and there's no, 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 before, you, before you travel too far away from that. Yeah. In my opinion, like the, and it's not the opening scene, but it's, it's the next scene in, um, in Citizen Kane, the shots yeah. of the characters in the theater. Yeah. That are watching the dailies. Yeah. That has got to be one of the most brilliant use of blacks in staging that I've ever seen in anything period <laughs> well but that's what was so i don't know who the dp is on that stuff um uh, robert weiss shot those shot citizen king didn't he or did he edit it i can't remember now who went on to be his own great filmmaker but it, you watch citizen kane and you watch uh the magnificent ambersons and you watch oh my god yeah uh touch of evil and you watch um lady from shanghai and and uh and then there's like a chimes, chimes at midnight. His use of black is, I mean, you watch Magnificent Ambersons and his use of black is, it's so masterful. There's these scenes, have you guys seen the movie? If you oh, haven't, yeah. just give it a look. There's these scenes where there's like characters 
in one room during a Christmas party and there's another character looking in the room during a Christmas party and there's a monologue going on, but he's using like a split lens focus. And so there's this person that's in the foreground that looks like they're about a hundred feet tall and there's a doorway in the background down this long black, you know, corridor with just little bits of highlights picked out on the wood. This is all very uh, ornate wood Victorian carvings and stuff. And then a doorway that's brightly lit with like a party going on inside of it. And those people are very small compared to this big black silhouette in the foreground. That guy was from a different planet. Like, I don't know. Oh, yeah. He's one of those guys that, whose work I look at and I don't, I mean, much like you, Brian, where, and I'm not trying to compare to Orson Welles, but. Oh, please do. It's, <laughs> but I'm just saying like, where I don't see most people, you can look at their work and you can see an evolution and you can see a, to go back to baseball, there's like a coaching tree, like where you can see influences and you can see the evolution of this idea and this style, whereas Orson Welles just came, came out of nowhere fully formed. It freaks me out because he did Citizen Kane when he was like 12. <laughs> you know, he was 25, and, right? Or something like yeah, that. Yeah, and that was like his first film. You know, it was just like, oh, yeah. And uh, here's what I'll open with. Yeah. And it, yeah, and it screwed him for the rest of his career because <laughs> he got on the wrong yeah. side of, uh, uh, what's his name? Of, uh, oh, yeah. Newspaper guys. <laughs> yeah, tap. And Hitchcock, I just watched uh, The Lady Vanishes, the, fir the, the, the first one. Oh, that I haven't he did. seen that. And it opens with this shot of a ski resort in a blizzard. And it's like this helicopter tracking shot that comes in out of a blizzard to the ski resort with like gondolas and like a, a delivery van. And, and then you push in further and you eventually you end up in a window where there's people doing stuff like, and, you, and the story and everything you're seeing will later inform like the delivery van will later become part of the story and the gondola will become part of the story and the snowstorm is part of the story. But at the time, yeah, he, he revisits that 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 type of shot in the in the opening sequence of the birds. Yes, it's just the, like oh my god, that's you get this you get this pan over, and it's just like okay, now you know where gas station, is. school, the yeah, the, the diner, the peninsula, everything is set up. But the funny thing though about the, the lady vanishes is that it, he was a young filmmaker; nobody cared who he was. He wasn't Alfred Hitchcock yet, and he couldn't do a helicopter shot or there was no such thing as a dolly or a tracking shot at that point. And so they used miniatures and then they were using process screens to like cross process. At the time, I'm sure it was breathtaking. Like people were like, Oh my God, how did he do that? But now it looks like King Friday is going to pop up out of the fucking tree at some point. <laughs> and you know, like there's a certain like Mr. Rogers element to the, the miniatures. But it's but at the same time I'm like man like this guy had balls because he knew what yes. he wanted and he figured out a way to do it and it didn't matter he sacrificed the the fact that he couldn't do it the beauty shots weren't going to be 100% convincing to the most sophisticated viewers because it's what the story needed I don't think there have ever been anybody filmmakers that are that courageous outside of maybe like the American new wave. And then when they had the British invasion with like uh, Adrian Lyne and Alan Parsons and, and the two Scott brothers. Um, like those are kind of my three periods of film for me. Oh, wow. Dude, that, um, that's, <laughs> that's really a, a great summation right there too, you know? Because it seemed to me like all of those people, there was the French new wave, the American new wave, the, the British invasion people and the earlier guys, uh, that were like the forefathers, 
they were all trying to break away from what had become entrenched. Yeah. And trying to reinvigorate or revitalize something. And so if you watch a well, Melville film or, or a Truffaut film, uh, or you watch a Coppola film or, or a Scorsese film from that, those, they're, you know, from their respective periods, well, high every, order. Everyone marks. that you're talking about, it, it was if those, those people skip the generation of trash before them somehow yes like they weren't in those it was it was just like okay we see the 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 people that came right before us were garbage but the people that came before them were awesome so let's take let's go back and and bring i mean the um the scott brothers i mean these guys they just brought in this style and they're they're heavy influence on my work because i think the scott brothers were like technicolor noir. <laughs> yeah, very much so. And and I, I would I put in there as well. I put Adrian Lyne and, and uh, Alan Parker. Oh, like oh yeah, 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 yeah. And, and even um even someone like um like I, I think De Palmer's a, a little bit too cartoonish, you know, sort of uh, about it. I love De Palma when he's not doing the stuff that De Palma is famous for. Like I love I think Phantom of the Paradise is one of the best films ever made. When you if you watch it today, it's visionary. But I watch uh, The Untouchables, and I'm like, no, nah, I've seen this better. I've seen a better version of that movie by other filmmakers. That that's one of the influence thing where it's just like, oh, you're being influenced by this, and I I can't even see you for your influences. Yeah, yeah. it's sacrificing everything for a moment. You know, yeah. everything just builds towards that moment, and uh, and and that's the thing that um, that I thought somebody like Hitchcock was so brilliant there are times when i was a kid watching hitchcock where i just couldn't i mean i was terrified to even finish the film <laughs> you know where you're yeah. just like oh, or just to breathe like tension. you can't turn it off you can't you can't look away you, you're fucked you're you are in hitchcock hell because you're mm-hmm. he does that to you oh I, yeah and i mean it's it's just really like absolutely earning the moment you know, within the moment, uh, whereas uh, a lot of films, like, you know, a lot of filmmakers, they, they get to the point where it's just, it's rote stuff, you know, like uh, when, when I yeah. watched the last uh, Star Wars uh, movie, I was just like, well, none of these moments are earned. All these moments are like from the backs yeah, they're of- They're paying uh, off the three, good graces yeah. of, of three trilogies ago, yeah. Mm. Yeah, and really not even three, it's like, you know, uh, two and a quarter, uh, good stuff. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, there's Empire Strikes Back, and then there's everything else. I I love Star Wars, but at the same time, out of the canon or out of the the context, I'm like, well, it's okay. Movie. Like, look at those fucking haircuts. But yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you know, Empire Strikes Back is one of those perfect films. It's almost perfect. It, it, yeah, it is a perfect film. Yeah. It, at least you know, to me, I was nine years old when that movie came out, and I told this story to somebody the other day. Growing up, the way I did, and going to the movies was a treat. And you know, we had three channels on television, and yeah. I was a little comic book geek. And and I saw Star Wars once, and I had to beg and beg, you know, to get to go because all my friends were talking about it. So like, my dad took me like after work, you know, one like weeknight during the summer or whatever, and we showed up late. And so I missed, like, we missed the opening scene. Like, I walked into that movie wow. theater. My dad was, we, were, my dad was still buying popcorn. Uh, I think maybe one of my sisters was with me. 
And I remember sneaking in because like we were waiting in line and I'm like, oh my God, I'm missing it. So I ran and I just like opened the door and just, like, stood there. And so the Later, first, bitches! Yeah, yeah. So I stood there and the droids were on Tatooine. So I had oh, missed yeah. the inciting incident, right? And uh, But was just completely engrossed. And there was no streaming. There was no video store. And I saw Star Wars one time. That was it. Yeah, like, I saw that drive in. Yeah, it never taken me back to that movie. So three years later, uh, to go to see Empire Strikes Back, and we went as a family. Like I, that's one of those things where like the movie had maybe been out a week or two, and and I wouldn't shut up about it. I'm, I'm sure I was the most annoying kid ever. So my dad would get in from work at like late because he worked these crazy hours. You know, Can we go see Star Wars this weekend? Can we please go see Star Wars? So you know, he got paid, and my two sisters, my my, uh, you know, I had one older, one younger, and my mom who can't stand movies to begin with like outside of, outside of gone with the wind like she's never liked anything and uh so we all as a family go to see star wars empire strikes back at the hoover twin so star wars empire strikes back was on one screen and some other movie was on the other and we got there like 30 minutes before showtime and it was sold out yeah so but but my like as tears you know start forming in my eyes and my dad looks at me and he's like you know fuck it we're going so we're buying for the 10 o'clock show. My mom is, <laughs> my little sister is like in diapers, right? And, uh, <laughs> oh my God. And so we go eat and we go to like Zaire. I get an action figure, the whole nine yards. And uh, we go to that movie and I've never been, there. It, it was like the ultimate experience. I will never see, there will never be anything that will affect me that way. And I was just engrossed. And I mean, I cried when it was over. I'm like, you know, they've got to save Han Solo. You know, it was like the most, the emotion. I, I didn't sleep that night. It was a perfect movie and it still holds up today. It's just an amazing, amazing film. You know, the rest of them don't. I mean, Star Wars is, is Star Wars. It's always going to be great, but The Empire Strikes yeah. Back is a perfect movie, you know. But and, also it um, does weird shit where like, or it, it, it takes for granted that the viewer accepts this as a fully fleshed out universe. And so there's these yeah. moments that are, total non sequiturs that make zeros like the the when the chamber opens and his helmet's coming down and the the emperor flickers or whatever for a moment there yeah yeah and you're like what the fuck is that they know there's, no, there's no setup there's no payoff there's no explanation there's nobody that there's no like expositional structure that's like oh he's talking to the emperor again ho ho you know it's like no it's yeah. just it assumes the viewer is smart enough to go with it and the fanboys today would not accept it. No. Like that movie today. Oh yeah, yeah. It, it wasn't. It wasn't overexplained uh, at all. You know. They didn't show because, what happened to all the the bounty hunters. They didn't explain what happened to. Do you? When you guys were kids, are you young enough to have gotten to been a part of the? Um, what was the book program at schools? Uh, Rit? Was that what it was called? When like they would give you the book order forms at school and you would mark out all the books. Oh yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. The book club. They had all the Star Wars. They had all the. They had like Consoles Revenge, and they had like IG eighty eight story, and like the whole Bounty Hunters book and all this. And I remember being in like, let's see, was it 80? 1980 when that came out. Yeah, eighty. So I was like eight years old. So it's probably like eight or nine when those books, or nine or ten when those books were coming out. And suddenly I'm getting like books that explain like how Han Solo became friends with Chewbacca and like what happened to boss and the, oh, yeah. and the, the different bounty hunters. I don't know. I just think that there was something magical about, about giving your audience that credit. 
Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, yeah, yeah. it felt it it felt real. I mean, one of the things that I that I always say is I probably became a comic book artist because I was a kid at bicycle riding age during 1982, which is the year that all the great movies came out. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and and it was just like literally every weekend jumping on my bike and riding to the cinema and I, I had a, uh, a job where I could kind of uh, make enough make enough money to buy a ticket and it's like every yeah. weekend it was like Road Warriors, Blade Runner, you know sort of Conan, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Aliens was in there somewhere and, and yeah yeah Poltergeist I mean, you know E.T. Yeah and we, and we would buy tickets yeah, to the E.T. movie. Yeah and you go to the R movie yeah. You know, back in those days, I did chores. Like right? I cut the grass, I did the whatever to make money. Exactly. And, uh, exactly. Same here. And mom would drop me off at the at the movie theater where there was like eight screens, and there was an arcade, of course, attached to it. Uh, so we would go in and we'd play the video games and 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 buy a ticket to go see, you know, war games or whatever, uh, and sneak I in. I love that arcade. movie. That was a great movie. Yeah. That's oh, you yeah, sneak yeah. in and you go see like Evil Dead or Pieces or. or or I bought a ticket blood, to yeah. E.T. So, so that I could see um, Sword and Sorcery. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah the good days, man. The good old <laughs> yeah. days. Oh, God. Uh, we are, this is like, we are running. I, like, Sean edits these things. And I know, like, <laughs> he may be asleep right now. I don't know. <laughs> I was, I was going to, like, kind of, I was going to storm in and just be, like, the Chris Farley guy, like, Hey Tom, you remember when they went down to the Fed? That was cool. But I just let you guys do your own thing. I was just like, okay, they have their groove going. I got stuff like twenty years on me. It's like I don't remember watching, you know, Empire Strikes Back. I think it was on TBS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, the first God. one. The first Star Wars movie Sean saw was The Phantom Menace. I, I that might be accurate. I remember oh, seeing that movie in the theater and standing up when it was over and going. That's what we fucking waited for, and, and and everybody was like, there was a half the people were looked at me. I could see tears in people's eyes when they, they turned away from the screen. I I'd yeah. never I I was like, oh, this is this is a different thing. I don't I don't want to screw with these people. But yeah, just, man, just man. really fast favorite movies. I'll just say a couple: Apocalypse Now, Strangers on a Train, Psycho, Richard. Oh, Dude. Haunting. Psycho. <laughs> Dude, dude, I have to tell you, that is Mad a mess, man. <laughs> Mad Max. Uh, Go watch all those movies if you're listening to this. Yes, Tom knows what he's talking about. And and uh, I'm going to totally segue. Like Psycho, when the first time I saw Psycho, I, I guess I was like in high school. And I didn't realize it until after, like maybe like thinking about it, you know, three months later. But that movie works because when he uh, puts the, the dead body or dot bodies. I can't remember. It's been a long time since I've seen it, but he puts the dead body in the car and he goes to the swamp to sink the car. And like, he's, you know, like he's the bad guy, right? I mean, you know, he's, he's covering for these murders, what you're thinking at the time, but that, that, that car starts sinking in the swamp. And then for a minute it stops. It pauses. Yeah. It hesitates. And you're you like, see and you're like, sink, sink, sink. And that's where they got you. Like, <laughs> because he's and, so empathetic. Anthony yes, Perkins is yeah. so empathetic. 
Yeah, and that's that's what I told. I'm going to go back to the comics. That's what I I told Doug Wagner when he when he wrote Plastic. For the first time in my life, like you recapture Psycho because I'm totally pulling for this crazy bastard the entire time. <laughs> and uh, that's what that's Hitchcock was just that was just so masterful. You could never get that movie made either. Like like right now, you could never get that movie made unless you were doing it for a million dollars. Have you ever seen Psycho Two? been a long, long time. Is, I've, seen, I've seen Psycho 2 a million times. I actually worked at a movie theater when that movie came out. It is, I, I secretly love that movie. Oh, yeah. that, my, my daughter loves, I, I've given her my Hitchcock thing, and, and she is a big fan of Psycho and Strange on the Train and Lifeboat and Rope and all that shit. And I was like, you know, we should watch a Psycho 2 because, like, it, it really rounds out that character of Norman Bates and uh, and so we watched Psycho 2 and it and I was really impressed by just how much I liked that movie like it was such a fun coda to the original film I don't think I've seen that since it was in the theater I would think I was in oh, high it's, school it's, it's definitely it's definitely worth watching and and Anthony Perkins is definitely like you're saying Kevin like he's deaf Norman Bates is definitely the hero slash victim until he's not. Yeah. <laughs> and then when he's not, you're like, you're like, dude, I would have done the same thing. Like, you're like, you can only yeah. push a man so far before he becomes his dead mother. That's yeah. <laughs> just, there are certain truisms. Yeah. We are absolutely ending on that note. <laughs> <laughs> All right, everybody, read, read, wait, wait, Tom, read the Black Monday murders, but do you have anything else going on? I'm doing the rights. I did the rights short story and, and uh, the Black Monday murders. What else am I doing? I'm doing other things, but I can't really discuss any of it at the moment, so I'm just going to leave it at that. We will leave the recorder on and ask him afterwards and uh, stick around. Yeah, and, and, and I'll throw in, like, catacombs, like, like, Tom has my utmost respect. We met Tom, I met Tom. Uh, around the time that he was about to direct or had just directed Catacombs. And as somebody who's you know, been doing comics for a long time and has had flirted with Hollywood and sold movies and TV shows that you know, have yet to make it, for a guy to come from drawing a comic book to selling a movie and directing a movie, get that movie made, holy shit, dude. Like, that's just yeah. unbelievable. It's a, it's a fantastic little movie. Uh, so it's, I think it's streaming on Tubi for free. Uh, or just a couple of bucks on Amazon, so you know. And I don't know what cut it is, but it's some, some version of it, yeah. Yeah, some version of it. Great ride story. Some of my favorite ride stories ever. Uh, Tom has written uh, and or draw, drawn all. You know, you, you've written and drawn two, and then and then drawn uh, the most recent one that, that Doug Wagner wrote. And those and both the stories, I was it was so honored to be involved in the book, and and and, and they let me figure out largely just refine what I do, like figure out how to do what I do. Oh, dude, you killed it, man. So, yeah, Robert Johnson's very was fun. Well, they're all great, and I uh, appreciate you taking the time with us uh, to spend like six hours with us tonight. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sean, go edit the fuck out of it, so. <laughs> yeah. yeah, Tom Coker, volume six. Uh, <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> but, uh, but dude, it was really good hanging out with you, man. Yeah, thank you for uh, for doing this. It's been a it's a it's an absolute treat to get the chat.
All right, everybody. Thank you so very much for listening to our Shot by Shot episode with Mr. Tom Coker. Stick around next week and we'll have Mr. Mark Wade. Yes, Mark Wade. I mean, the guy has written every single favorite character that I think I've ever had. Uh, there's not many writers that have had the opportunity to, to do what he's done. And obviously he's earned every bit of that. So really looking forward to uh, sitting down with him and, and hope everybody will be back to join us. Yeah, he's like the patron saint of modern superheroes. I mean, you really can't think of a figure who shaped and led them from the golden and silver ages to now more than Mark Wade. Yeah. Well, you say it much better than me. (laughs) All right, everybody. Thanks again. Thanks.